Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Jargon with me, your co with your host, RJ, on the Fred Hampton Leftist Network. Today, we have a special guest to join us, uh, Jabari Morris. He is the co-editor-in-chief of At Real Progressive US on Twitter, and as well as RP in Action. How are you, Jabari? I'm fine. Nice to hear from you, RJ. Nice to hear. Nice having you on. So I guess the first two topics we're really going to talk about today is really universal basic services as well as public banking. And I believe the conversations on the left really in general about how to help working class people, especially in the monetary situation that's going on right now, especially with the U.S. dollar, with the debt, and the Federal Reserve pumping out trillions of dollars in big corporations. I believe it's important to really have conversations with how working class people not only could store their money, but how they use their money. And as well as using different types of uh, services to help people instead of necessarily relying on really the government all the time. So in general, Jabari, uh, give us a little bit of insight on both those two topics we'll be discussing. Well, for me, I believe that understanding how the system of things operates is the most important thing. That's why over the last five or six years, I've spent a lot of time um, studying modern monetary theory, which pretty much describes how the economic system works. So that when people, people are so fearful of the word, the national debt, they don't understand that what, what we call the quote unquote national debt is just a sum total of all the treasuries outstanding, which basically amounts to our, our functioning money supply in the nation. That's all it is. But it's used as a fear tactic so that w w when progressives and other leftists fight for things, they, they can always say the magical words. Well, how are you going to pay for it? Uh, how many times have you heard liberals say that? Oh, all the time. <clears throat> but nobody ever asks how you're going to pay for, pay for bombing Afghanistan, do you? They never right. ask, they ask how you're going to pay for the subsidies you give to Israel, right? No, sir. They never ask you how you're going to pay for the, the billions and bi the millions and billions and trillions that we pump in the corporations when they be, they get ready to fall because they're quote unquote too big to fail. Mm, that's correct. Uh, so all it basically does is it shows you that in this particular nation and, and some others, it describes the system. So in, in the United States, because we have a sovereign fiat currency that's non-convertible, and you can't, which means not convertible means you can't exchange it, one, it for another currency. That means that there is no way we cannot pay our quote unquote debts because they're not really debts. They actually become more like savings accounts. So, like, imagine at the Federal Reserve, you have two kinds of accounts. You have one called the demand account, which, you know, would be like your checking account. And then the savings account will amount to basically the treasuries, whatever treasures you have, right? So if I say you owe, you are $100 in debt in that side, right? All you have to do is switch money from, from your demand account to that one, then you switch it around. And so the U.S. is $100 in debt in the treasure securities, right? And then you they say, well, I don't want that. So they just switch the money from treasure security to demand account. Did any money change hands? Absolutely not. That just blew my mind right there. <laughs> That's it's, just as it's just as simple as that. So it went from 
this side of ledger to that side of ledger. The same person owns it. While before he owned a treasury, now it's marked up in his demand account or your corporation's demand account. You know, individuals don't have demand accounts to pay it. That's more of a corporation bank thing. So that so that's that's what's surprising to me then. So why do really the politicians, Democrats and Republicans are now harping about this when the process is pretty simple to absolve of this debt? And two, do you think it's mostly because of the fear mongering by corporations believing that, oh, you know, if the government is a surplus, then we'll lose money. Like some people say, well, <clears throat> when government is in a debt, then you have a surplus in really the private corporations. And if it's the opposite, it happens too. So what are your two thoughts on that? Well, of course, uh, well, understanding that modern monetary theory is just a description of reality. The reality says this here. If the federal government is in, quote unquote, debt, that means that's a surplus for everybody else out here. When, a, when the federal government runs a surplus, that means they're taking money out of their economy, which generally leads to recessions. Um, I know you might not be old enough, but you probably did some little studies on this before, but you remember when um, Bill Clinton ran a so-called surplus for a few months back in um, 19, I think late 1990s? Mm -hmm. You know you ended up with a recession. Mm. Because what you're doing is you're taking money out of the economy. And when you do that, what happens is private debt has to fill in the place. See, that's what they don't tell anybody. It, the debt that we need to worry about is not the quote-unquote federal government debt. You need to worry about the debt that you and me and cities and states hold. That's the debt that matters because we are not, we are non-sovereign. That means we don't have control of a currency, at least not when it is accepted for paying taxes in the United States, which is what makes our currency so valuable. You can only pay U.S. taxes in U.S. dollars. Try, try taking, try saying to the, um, the IRS, hey, I got, I got some Bitcoin over here. The IRS going to laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> You, I, I got 20 cars, right? No, you can't do anything with that other than take the cars and sell them for cash and then pay off the debt. Because <laughs> <laughs> at, at the beginning of the day, that's what a U.S. dollar is. It is a measure of debt. It's a.k.a. a debt instrument. All right. currencies like that. Right, that makes, per that makes perfect sense. Um, I think what you said, too, is pretty surprising because um, a lot of historians, when they cover really even the Great Depression of like the 1930s, they said, well, Franklin Roosevelt and really Congress during that time, by them increasing taxes on the rich and increasing taxes overall, that's kind of what you're describing with the modern monetary theory, that if you um, have a government surplus, that private industry would go down. And if it's the opposite, people said that actually spending all that money on the private, on the public sector side, it kind of uh, really increased the recession overall. And so what do you, what do you think? <laughs> I know you're disagreeing. That's why I'm laying it, uh, laying it well, out for I, you. In fact, I can explain it to you. I'm thinking, um, okay, so they started the spending, right? And, you know, he made, he made a bunch of um, three-letter agencies, like, you no know, TWA, CCC, WPA. And then I think in 1936 or 1937, I can't remember the exact year, he got a little squeamish, right? And he's like, whoa, there's a lot of money going at one time, right? So he got squeamish, and they pulled back on the spending. And guess what? The depression got worse for a while. You know what ended all that stupidity? 
Pearl Harbor. So once Pearl Harbor happened, we got involved in the war. Guess what? We had to ramp up everything, and that's what ended the Great Depression. Because you had, you know, at this point, we were spending money at, on levels that you couldn't even think, you couldn't even dream of in order to um, do the war effort. And in fact, you know, because it was spending so much money, there was a lot of money out there, right? So a lot of people thinking that, oh, you, know, you heard about like the victory bonds and everything? Mm -hmm. All yep. the victory bonds did was not to, uh, you know, they sold it as, oh, invest in your nation, right? Buy a victory bond. That's not what it was for. You know what the victory bond was? For, what was it for? To get rid of inflation. So the economy wouldn't overinflate, wouldn't get too high in inflation. So basically, the bonds took, when, you, when they bought the victory bonds, which weren't redeemable until after the war, that was money that was spent and it got put up in the bonds. So it, it wasn't out in the normal money supply. Hmm. So, so it basically just locked them up for a while. So once the war was over and the spending decreased, people sold their bonds. And then next thing you know, you had the, you had the, um, the 1950s, which was an uh, era of great economic prosperity. Hmm, I wonder why. Oh, and then we're still spending money at the same time. We're um, spending a lot of money on the Marshall Plan and other things, right? Right. Um, like the GI bills, or of course they didn't give it to us, but you know they gave it. <laughs> yeah. To, 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 so just you see that that was one of the problems. A lot of things. Um, there's a lot of good programs that the government's had over the history of, of the federal government. Unfortunately, they wasn't been available to not all of us. Yeah, you're hmm. speaking facts about that. I mean, when when we're talking about theory in terms of how it could play out, yes, it's good in theory, but not really in practice for those who are poor and those who are people of color, you know, and what really surprised me too about this phenomenon you mentioned about victory bonds, um, the first time, really, one of the first known times in which um, regular American people knew about these type of bonds was really during World War I as well, when um, people would buy, uh, buy war bonds during that time to help supply the war effort during World War I. And shortly after that, private industries, private corporations at the time, um, the stock market was kind of closed. You had to kind of have like an invitation only. You had to be rich to get into the stock market. And private industry was so scared because of the mass amounts of American people buying these type of war bonds. They're thinking, well, if they could buy government bonds, then they could buy uh, money in the stock market as well. So I think that's kind of what scared them too. And I guess the reason why I bring this up is because you see this phenomenon too that happened earlier this summer with um, Wall Street bets. And since we are talking about uh, really modern monetary theory as well as um, the economy as well, what's your opinion on Wall Street bets? Because in ways they did play the system, in ways they kind of beat the system at their own game, yet the system still killed them and cheated them in a way. So what's your opinion on oh, the entire scenario? Well, you're talking about the whole, what well, you mean the whole Robin Hood thing? Exactly. They, when, they, when they tried to um, short sell, when the, um, the those um, hedge funds tried to short sell, um, what was those corporations? Um, uh, GMC, a GameStop, a Nokia. Yeah, GameStop. That was a big one, yes. They tried to short sell them, but everybody bought them and held on to them. See, that's, see, a lot of people understand what the stock market is. The stock market is nothing but a legalized casino. That's all. <laughs> yeah, but I thought, see, I thought like when you were on CNBC, they say, well, see, our markets are have integrity, you know, it's principled. It's not a casino. That's that's what they say. So what do you say about that? 
if you spend your, I'll tell you this here, any time you spend watching CNBC, it's time wasted on rotting your brain. <laughs> At least from a leftist point of view. Of course, if you're trying to live neoliberalism and that's your thing, hey, go right ahead. But if you're a leftist, you need to avoid that kind of stuff with the plague. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, like the plague. <laughs> yeah, but the reason why I brought that up is because it was, it was so funny to watch those guys on CNBC go crazy because really in ways, um, they got the people who are doing the bets, it was on Reddit. So there's like this uh, Reddit page called Wall Street Bets for those who may not know. And they were really betting that those companies wouldn't fail. So they would put like tons of money buying different types of stock and they would figure out how much um, shortage in a stock that these hedge funds would do. And they would just flood money in it. Like it was GameStop, it was Nokia, um, mm -hmm. All these different types. Uh, I think it was AMC as well. That uh, movie theater. Yeah, AMC. Movie, that was a big one. Yes. Yeah, because movie theaters during the time, because uh, of COVID, they were closed, so they were just bleeding money, and so these hedge fund managers would bet against them normally because if they're going to keep going down, the likelihood of them continuing to go down increases, and so these uh, people they were just buying up these different types of stock, and I believe Citadel, which is one of the largest uh, hedge funds in the country. They lost, I believe, $6 billion in a single day. <laughs> so it was incredibly beautiful. But the crazy yes, part is Citadel is the company that uh, fulfills all the payments and stuff to Robinhood, the app that was used by people to buy <laughs> the stocks in the first place. <laughs> so what's your opinion on all that? Hey, it was nothing more than the people who gamed the system getting caught with their hands in the cookie jar. Pretty much that's all it was. <laughs> but th this cookie jar was a massive one. Yeah. But we see that right now. Look at Bitcoin uh, over the last couple of weeks. It's just been fluctuating up and down. All this stuff is speculation. It's not real. The stock market's not real. If you invest in the company, that's what you want to think about. You, you, you look at, let's say you look at um, someone, let's say AT&T. And let's say they say, you know what? We're going to provide 5G all over the Pacific Ocean. Let's say something like that. Just something crazy. So we need to take in money in order to do this, right? So they sell new stock, right? You buy some of that new stock, new stock of the IPO, right? You invest in the company, right? Now, what happens after you have it and you say you, know, you don't want it anymore? You want somebody else to have. What is that now? Is that still investing? Nope. Is any new money going into that company now? Nope. <laughs> so what is it now? Speculation. <laughs> exactly. Which a lot of people have gotten rich from that. And a lot of people have jumped off the bridge, jump off bridges for that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this, this, you're right about the stock market being more like a casino. And I think even no matter how much types of reform you do for protection for working class people, if it, when the economy crashes, it still affects everyone, regardless if it's working class people don't have any money in the game. And even if you do try to do the right thing, we've seen during 2008 with the financial crisis, with the housing bubble bursting, regular working people basically uh, doing the best they can, trying to pay for their house um, during the recession, Banks would say, hey, you know, you don't have to pay us for four months. Don't even worry about it. You know, just wait four months, come back to us, and you'll pay it. 
and and then you're thinking okay but then by the time the fourth and fifth month comes they want for instance if you owe like twelve hundred dollars a month for rent instead of that being just the twelve hundred dollars it's twelve hundred times the four months you couldn't be able to pay and no person can pay what like four thousand uh four thousand four hundred dollars well, $4,800. Or, $4,800. Or, or, or technically, it would be like five, it'll be a whole $6,000 because you'll be in the fifth month at that point. Uh, <laughs> so they didn't want $6,000. Oh, yeah. um, you, know, you know what the scary thing is? What's the scary thing? It's about to happen again. In fact, and this is one of the reasons why, if you haven't heard of um, our podcast called The New Untouchables at Real Progress in Action, you need to check out our YouTube channel. Well, we actually have um, the people who, who create the con, Eric Vine and um, Patrick Lowell. They actually went around the country and find the people who was affected by the 2008 housing crisis. And there's a lady, a black lady, whose name I'll never forget, who lived in Ohio, who ended up shooting, shooting herself and killing herself because they literally stole her house out from under her because of a loan that she never signed. Her name is Addie Polk. Never forget the name. Addie Polk. What happened in her in her case? So you said that she got her house taken away from her from a loan she didn't sign. And I know the I know like the law and procedural stuff that she had to do is really expensive itself. So what what was her background? Um, what was the situation like that she went through? Um, it's hard to explain. That's why I say you have to go watch it. Because um, they had five, ep- they actually had five episodes of New Untouchables. They actually coincided with the five episodes of the Doctor series, The Con. So while The Con does cost twenty dollars to watch the whole series, you can actually watch it on, on Vimeo, I think. Um, the New Untouchables is free. It's in both video form and in podcast form. So you need to hear these stories, and we're actually about to come out with another series, another series of it. But this time. Instead of approaching it with the new untouchables, we approached it from the whistleblowers like um, Bill Black, who was um, a big time person back in the day who used to look into these banks. He's also a professor in a, in a big time proponent of modern monetary theory himself, and a bunch of other people, a bunch of other people who were willing to blow the whistle, including one guy who blew the whistle on his own on his own company that he used to run. I think his name is Richard Bourne. Um, I think he ran the city group at the time. And he blew, and he blew the whistle. So now he's a professor. Of course, you'll never be hired in private industry again for that. But yeah, that's kind of high professor. Works. Yes. So you have to watch that because the story, I, it, I can't tell you the story because we won't be able to talk about anything else but that. No, I, I'm, hey, I can, I can do that for a while if you want. I mean, you can give a, well, a brief intro, a tease for everyone so they can well, go check it out. Well, I pretty much te- well, that, that was the tease. Okay. You hear about <laughs> the story of how Wall Street gained the system to make a bunch of money that caused pain, injury, and death to thousands of Americans, literally stealing their biggest asset right from under them. Exactly. And the first, and I was like I was saying, the, the first, the first um, season of the New Untouchables talks about that from the eyes of the whistleblowers. The the con, the miniseries that I was telling you about, actually documents how it went through a, a little bit more 
sort of from the eye of the person getting hurt and from the, and from the eye of the whistleblower. However, the second season of the New Untouchables that's coming up probably in another month or so, they actually just did, did the recording. Um, they spent five hours on one day doing all this, right? It's actually going to touch on this whole thing only from the point of the people who got hurt. And some of these people got hurt weren't poor people. These are somebody, a lady lost her $1.5 million house, paid the mortgage all the time, every time, on, at by clockwork. But there was a loan out that they didn't know about. And for that loan, they got foreclosed because it happened in California. They don't have to go to court. And they just literally snatched the house. Sheriff came there, kicked out the house, and that was it. Wow. Um, Olympic gold medal, uh, uh, Olympian lost their house same way. So these stories, you have to really get ready to listen to um, Real Progress in Action, The Do Untouchables. We have our whole playlist of all five episodes. It's, I mean, it's something to see because that really shows you the corruption of the system that we're dealing with. Well, I 100% agree. I mean, there's so many stories about um, people really paying their mortgages on time, investing tons of money into their home. And this effect that these uh, private corporations, these banks are doing, is completely the it's completely opposite of this capitalistic uh, system that they cherish so much. I mean, <laughs> if you look at a private corporation, right? If you own fifty one percent of the company, you control the uh, you basically control the company, the controlling interest of that company. But if you, as a private citizen, if you go to a bank and say, "I own fifty one percent of my house," I own the house, they'll, they'll laugh at you, and. <laughs> So, I mean, it just it doesn't really seem right at all. And also, like the uh, videos you mentioned here that we all should check out, um, how does that differ from the Vox episode? Because I think Vox, this uh, media uh, platform, they created their own documentary. I believe it's two hours long about what went wrong with the financial crisis. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Well, I haven't seen it. Um, but you, the one I'm talking about is definitely made from the view of people who don't have a vested interest in a certain narrative. And, and it's five hours of must-see of must-see um, video. And right. like I said, that, that's the con. And that's, I, you can, if you put up the con, you search for it on Vimeo, you'll see it. Um, Eric Vaughn and, and Patrick Lord, those are the two, the producer and the, um, and the director. Yeah, I, I'll definitely check that out. And I definitely advise you all to check it out. And I think it'll be different from the box episode because so Vox documentary, it basically uh, gave the point of view from like the government and really the Democrats, the Republicans, the Treasury Secretary kept repeating the narrative that, oh, it's too big to fail. You know, we had to do it. You know, we had no other choice. You know, if we didn't do it, working class people would suffer even more. So it's more of that narrative. And I do look forward to the stuff that you're talking about in which it really describes the pain and the suffering and the anguish that uh, people really have been going through. And I do believe it's a good time to transition to really public banking itself. And what type of uh, solutions could it bring to help working class people? Uh, any suggestions you may have or what's the best way moving forward on this policy? Well, in terms of banking, you know, public banking, there's different ways of doing it. You know, one option you can always have is um, doing something that used to happen back in the day. The, the post office being um, a bank right there at the level. In fact, that's one of the main public banking policies in terms of at, 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 at um, the personal level. Now, when I think about public banks, I, I'm talking more about public investment banks. 
that actually invest in the public purpose of um, cities and states and and um, organizations that are looking to try to improve their environment, their um, society, their city. That's a little bit different. But if you talk about being, you know, dealing with so many people who are poor, who are unbanked, the po- post office bank, postal banking is a great idea. In fact, we actually have, a, I think we have an article about that on um, realprogressors.org that deals with postal banking from a, a writer, um, I think he actually was a mailman, uh, David Soul. is a great article. Um, so that's something we can do. Could you describe uh, what uh, postal banking is? Because me personally, I'll blame myself being a Zoomer. I don't really know about uh, much about the post office. So uh, could you describe what um, really postal banking is and how it works back then and really how it could be beneficial for today? Well, I don't know all of the how it used to work, but just think about the functions it currently has. You currently can go to the post office, handle some money, and they make your money order, right? Mm-hmm. Back, but back in the day, they actually used to be able to hold funds for you in, in there, and you had an account. You got to have an account with them. So for the unbanked who are used to dealing with banks, maybe they got caught up in check systems, you know, overdrafted accounts, so they don't they're, they're not able to even bank anymore. And you know that when you can't bank, that you end up having to pay fees for like, you know, pay, cashing your paycheck and everything. And those things take money away. If you notice, the system is always set up so that the poor have to pay more fees than the rich per capita. You look at that um, in terms of like um, people getting arrested, you know, cash bail. And in fact, we just had a video um, during MMT Mondays. It was one of our um, uh, Monday features on um uh, real progressive YouTube, where uh, we look at different things and events from the lens of modern monetary theory. So we actually looked at public. We actually looked at ending cash bail, and there's a great video. That's one you should check out there too. But that's basically what it is. It basically gives a chance at the post banking level for the the unbanked to get a chance to be banked, so they don't have to pay the exorbitant fees that you get when you go to a check cashing place. Well, sometimes they're taking six, you know, three, five, six percent. And if you already only make a minimum wage, that's a significant part of your paycheck going down the drain. Yeah, that sounds like really the safest option, because if you look at the banking system today, it's really three different parts. You have the big banks like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, all those big ones, the same big ones, uh, J.P. Morgan, Chase, uh, those big ones are really really the scariest ones because if they go under oh my goodness a whole lot of people might go under too well no actually you know what if they go under the people don't have to go under that's actually not true Hmm. that's what wall street says so they can we can when the when the banks do things wrong and they post to suffer the consequences they don't they get bailed out what if the bank does wrong instead of building out the bank you bail out the people so the people who had mortgages at the bad bank and the bank goes under, instead of those people losing their houses, pay off their mortgages. Right. That makes that makes tons of sense. Hey, uh, that that's what that's see, whenever they whenever Wall Street and stuff talks about those things too big to fail and you got to help this out of this is gonna crash the economy, it's really because it's gonna crash them. So if the government wasn't bought out by the same people who own Wall Street. <laughs> then you can actually give the money and the services directly to the people 
instead of the people having to go into the, the marketplace in this case, or, you know, to the mortgage company, which also ties into what I want to discuss about universal basic services. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about the UBIs, you know, especially from um, people like Andrew Yang and Scott Santins. Uh, the problem with UBI is the UBI only supports capitalism. It does nothing to transform capitalism. It gives you money and it turns you into a consumption unit. Yeah, you're right. So that, yeah, you get a UBI. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't have to work anymore. Yeah, I can deal with that. You know, I'm dealing with myself a little bit, you know, whatever. Then when the prices go up, but the UBI doesn't go up, and they say, you know what, you don't got, and if you actually look at Andrew Yang's proposal, which is a, a particularly horrible one, is you can get the UBI, but then you have to forego all other federal benefits. <laughs> the cheese, that's the cheese in the trap, as they would say. Uh, yes. So his UBI was a particularly nasty form. And the problem is, though, that if you pump money into the economy and there's no price stabilizer, that becomes an issue that you can raise prices and suck up all the gains that people got from a UBI. Now, of course, they always say, well, we've did studies and, you know, we went to these people who are making $7.25 an hour or were dead broke. And we gave them seven, eight hundred dollars a month, and they improve, and their life improves. Well, duh, of course their life is going to improve. <laughs> but you look at things from a micro level. We talking about from a macro level. You giving everybody twelve hundred thousand dollars a month, all across the United States for the three hundred and ten. Let's say for the three. Let's say how many adults? Probably like a, maybe one hundred eighty, sixty, one hundred seventy, eighty million adults. And you get them all a thousand dollars a month. That's one point. What? Let's see, hundred sixty. That's a hundred and sixty billion dollars in the economy every month. So that's all, that's basically two trillion, like two trillion dollars at the end of the year that's in the economy. That does has nothing to do with production. Exactly. So that when, when you put money in and you don't increase production, that's when you get inflation. Exactly, 100%. Okay. So here's the catch. Though. Let's say instead of doing it that way, we implement a job guarantee, which to me is actually, I believe, is a form of universal basic services. So is Medicare for all, obviously. But other things that we don't always think about in terms of universal basic services. Um, what about universal internet? Because right now, if, you, if, you, if you're unemployed and you don't have internet, how do you apply for a job? Nobody applies for jobs from paper anymore. Yeah, you're right, especially during COVID as well. Like, okay. um, and, and how and how are kids getting their schooling? Internet only. But if you don't have universal internet, people fall by the wayside. You saw that a lot of poor people, a lot of poor kids, fell by the wayside during the whole the, the middle part of the pandemic because they didn't have access to reliable internet. What about universal housing? We have so many empty units. Here in America, we have way more empty units for people to live in America than we have homeless people. We exactly. see all those people off the street easily. You know what's crazy about that, though, is that if you look at the whole capitalistic system of supply and demand, traditionally what they teach you in the schools is, is that, well, if demand is high but supply is low, that means that the prices of the commodity increases. 
But what's crazy about what you're saying is that the supply of housing in America is substantially higher than demand. Wouldn't that mean housing prices would be relatively low? But it seems like year after year, regardless of reception of, of ooh, excuse me, recession, the housing prices continue to increase. Oh, that's because of mortgage securities. They bundle, they bundle the um, the mortgages into securities and then speculate them. That helps to increase the prices. On top of that, in order to just, oh, they explained it so well, I think during the new untouchables, about how they, they would take in the um, appraisers and have the appraiser purposely appraise the house higher than what it was so they can get a loan that they wouldn't have got if the house was at a different price. So it made, it made it seem like they had equity in the house that they didn't have. So this is when, and this is why they, this is what they call big time stuff like this here. It's called control fraud. Because basically the people that's in control of the system are the ones frauding the system. Yeah. And elite control fraud because they, they, these are the people at the top of the top. And then, you know, of course they dispense it down to the lower, the lower people so that they can sort of wash their hands of it. But then, but when you look back, who gets rich and who got poor, we see what happened. Pandemic happened. Jeff Bezos became what? 30% richer. And I think one day he earned like a, a trillion, he went, he gained like a trillion dollars of wealth in one day, I think. Something uh, he, crazy I think it was like a $16 billion in a day. In a day, which is ridiculous. You know why? Because it's all caught up in speculation. Funny money. That's what you call funny money. <laughs> not what you and me work for, or not what somebody who's getting social security and living off of $700 a month dealing with. We're talking about money that people don't ever touch, never see, never feel. Exactly, 100%. So, so when we look at giving somebody a UBI and then you're saying, okay, here's your $1,000. Now go fend for yourself in the marketplace. They have no power. Give somebody universal basic services. Okay, I know where I'm going to live at. Okay. I know I'm going to eat. Okay. I know I can look for a real job or try to establish a business because I now have reliable internet. Hmm. Okay. Oh, we have Medicare for all. So I don't have to worry about my health care. Hmm. Oh, oh, and if I really want to work and somebody out there doesn't have a job for me, I can go to the employment office, not the unemployment office, the employment office and get a job the next day. Think about how much mental health care, care costs you save on that alone. Because yeah. people, what leads to mental health problems is when people worry. And they worry when they aren't having their basic needs met. This is basic, this is basic psychology here. Yeah, you're pretty and in, fact, they, right in fact, they use basic psychology against us. That's why they have so much artificial scarcity. So that they can control us. Exactly. I think I think your I think the idea of universal basic services is really way even better than the UBI because on the on the left right now like there's another form of UBI which uh, I don't think we even address here. I'm not really 100% on that, but they did compare it to Andrew Yang's sense of UBI. And based on this conversation that we're having today, I think I'm more in favor of really the universal basic system because if you're uh, wanting to give people like $2,000 a month or, or yada, 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 you're still relying on really the United States uh, cash monetary system. But if you actually have systems put in place, like those that you described, 
it's a little bit more democratic because if the government is controlling it, in theory, uh, that means it's more democratic and that uh, voters would have to really have say about where those funds go. But if you're relying on giving that money to individuals, just cash only, then, they're in, then they have to go into private corporations where it's extremely undemocratic and they have little to no power. And I'm glad you brought up the, the, about the democratic, the, the, sorry, how much more democratic universal-based services because one aspect of the job guarantee is really big on because you have communities, you can sit there, you go to your council meeting for your, for your town and you sit there with everybody else. Like, what program can we put in place that's going to benefit our town and have people work on that? But let's say, people say, well, what about these racist times? Well, if we have universal basic, we have universal basic uh, housing. So any, any city you go to, you're going to find a place to hop in it. You got universal basic food. So, oh, we can eat. Okay, we got universal basic healthcare, so you ain't got to worry about where you're getting your insulin at or something, right? Hey, let's add transportation to the list. Now, guess what? If you are in a racist town, you can move. <laughs> you can really move because you have the systems in place to move without you have to have money saved up to do it. Changes the whole game. So if a town <laughs> wants to get slick and say, well, ah, we don't like these immigrants. We don't like these other guys. So we're just going to make programs and try to be exclusionary with it. It becomes a ghost town. I think you brought up a good point, though, because I think universal basic systems, what it also does, not only is it more democratic, but it also increases economic mobility. Because if you're a working class person, and let's say you have these different type of services, really that's more universal. You're not really tied to one particular job, one particular company, one particular healthcare system, one particular uh, really state, uh, state or city government. It's kind of all entwined into one. So instead of really relying and begging on these corporations to give you scraps while they exploit you, you literally can move wherever you want to, get as many different services as you want to, and those services will be bartering towards you for your money, not the other way around. So I think that's a different conversation that no one's really had. And I think now we have the climate for it, because even with uh, the strikes today for uh, McDonald's workers, even for uh, working class people working in um, manufacturing, those who aren't working fast food, they're not, they're, they're not gonna stand for these low paid jobs as well. And so maybe they would be in favor of these uh, universal basic services as well. So not only do they have a job, but they have healthcare. Uh, they, have they can get transportation, they can get housing. So what's your uh, feel on really the climate for today and how it could really make a push for universal basic services? Um, well, the way to make the push for that is for us to learn about these things. And you have and the other learn about it, somebody has to teach it. Of course, there are resources on the internet, but I think we really have to be evangelists for what we know is the truth. And we know the truth is, if you rely on corporations, they are going to get you every single time. So we have to move away from that corporate model, which is what capitalism basically is. You look at it. What's the first seven levels of capitalism? <laughs> is it like, like an acronym? Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to think of like an acronym. No, capital. Okay. <laughs> That's the first seven letters of capitalism. So I mean, it's basically based around people who have money and stuff who can control everybody else because they control 
the money and the stuff. True. So it's truly a system of control that benefits those who have capital and is against all of those who don't have capital. Yeah, it's extremely authoritarian and exclusive as well. Absolutely. So I guess um, I want to go back to uh, universal banking. I think we can kind of go back and forth. Um, now, I think we did discuss really the type of services people can use with their type of funds or it could be funded through their tax dollars. But, um, whoa, uh oh, whoa, whoa, uh oh. Don't say that, man. I don't want to hear that word, tax dollars. Uh oh. <laughs> you see, that, that's that neoliberal paradigm. At the federal level, your taxes do not fund spending, it don't happen. Because you have to look at the order of operations. Where do dollars come from? Where did the first dollar come from? It didn't come from a bank. Because where did the bank get it from? True. It comes from the federal government. Well, this is how it works. Okay. In fact, um, I think Warren Mosley has talked about this before. He made gave the story that is a true story. Okay. Great Britain went to Africa, right? And they went into these um, African nations, right? And so they took them over. So they tried to introduce the pound into the, these nations, these African nations. Nobody in the village wanted it because it had no use to them. So the, Brit the British got slick and they said, oh, oh, I know what we do. We impose a hut tax. So you either, so in order for you to keep your hut and we, not, we don't take our bulldozer or something and knock it down, you have to go work, you have to go work somewhere and make enough money so you can pay the hut tax. I just I could tell the same story from, from like coupons, like a family you could use at home. Like you like you can tell your kids, hey, I got these coupons, right? They don't want the coupons, so you tell them, okay, all right, you have to do chores to earn these. You have to get do chores to. Get, well, sorry, you have to pay me ten coupons a week, otherwise you lose your TV and your gaming privileges. Now they want to figure out where they can get these coupons for. And then you tell them, oh, okay, you can get some coupons by washing the dishes, cutting the grass, um, sweeping the, mopping the floor. Hmm. So basically, when the government taxes, that's the beginning of unemployment. Hmm. Thanks for correcting me, <laughs> correcting me on that because I didn't, I didn't know. A lot that of people don't know it. A lot of people don't know. That's why it's important to um, learn more about MMT. I remember. The, um, the Warren Mosley's free book. It was called Seven Deadly Sins. Of, se sorry, Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds changed my life because it showed me all of the things that I didn't understand when I took an economic class. I looked at it. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and then it made oh, now I understand. It wasn't supposed to make sense. It was meant to be a lie the whole time and confuse you. So you don't find the truth. Oh yeah, I remember taking uh, economics in high school and the professors always, well the teachers, professors, they always say, it never makes sense at first. And then you're just trying so hard as a student to try to make it make sense. And the more you get older, you realize it never made sense in the first place. It never does. But once you learn what the truth is, is that hey, the, government, the federal government spends first before it collects the tax. Now it might impose the tax, before it spins, but it never can collect the tax until after it spins, because you can't take 
you can't get blood from a turnip, can you? Use an old black, old black expression now. <laughs> you have to give somebody the blood first, then you can take it back. You can't get it. You can't get it from where it is in it there. So the government taxes, which cause unemployment, because people are not looking to try to find ways to get that currency. Okay, they get the currency, right? They have to pay back a certain amount of that currency to the government to that government to satisfy the said debt. And the cycle goes on and on like that. Now, of course, at the, at the um, banking level, banks create, do create money. Don't, don't ever believe in that fractional reserve banking garbage. It doesn't make sense because it, it ain't make, make sense either. Because banks actually create new deposits. But it does something a little different. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of double-ledger accounting, right? Have you ever heard of that? Oh, uh, no, nope, I've never heard of it. Okay, really simple. And it makes sense because it's really simple arithmetic. On one side, you have assets. The other side, you have liabilities. At the end of the day, everything's to equal zero. So if I take a loan from a bank for $5, now, this is interesting. I've created both an asset and a liability for myself. Now I'm about to get $5, right? But now I owe the bank $5. Now the bank has a liability of, oh, we gave out $5, right? Now we're $5 short. But they always have asset knowing that they're going to get $5 back from you plus interest. <laughs> uh, this, is, this sounds like a, it sounds like, so when you break it down like that, it sounds like a scam. But then when, like, uh, when the banks say, oh, wait, the people, they make it try to make it seem like it makes sense. Yeah, they, they, try to make it, they try to make it make enough sense so that you're confused enough to agree with it. That's the that's the thing right there. What's what's your opinion on credit unions? Because you know some people do think that credit unions are substantially better than a bigger bank. So what's your opinion on those? That's all I gotta say. Nothing wrong with that because that's extra people pulling their money together. That's what the credit unions. I have nothing against that idea over a big bank. Nothing at all. That's pretty good. I keep uh, my uh, my money in a credit union. I think it's kind of one of the one of the safest. Ways to bank as well. No arguments there, my brother. No arguments there. You mentioned earlier that um, you were in favor of really, um, it was one of your uh, universal basic services in terms of the internet usage, because especially uh, during COVID right now, where a lot of in person activities are kind of shut down, most people are meeting through Zoom. Um, what do you think could be done, whether it's us working with our people to get that done or whether it's through Congress, because I believe um, the House Progressives um, co-sponsored a bill for really um, internet municipalities. So uh, what do you think is really the best strategy in order to get that moving forward as in terms of universal basic services? Well, if you're talking about in terms of even internet or anything, let's just talk internet, let's say. So here's how you, anything, any bill with Congress, it works like this, this is how money comes into existence. Congressman, all appropriation bills by, by law have to start in the House of Representatives. That's hardwired in the Constitution. So the House gets together, they agree, or find some kind of way to agree. If they don't, then it doesn't happen. Um, they agree on a bill. They send that bill to the Senate. Senate looks at the bill and says, oh, we got a slightly different version. So if that happens, then they get together in a committee of, of the Senate in the House, and they work it out. So now, okay, bill looks good. So then they take it, send it back to the house. Oh, it, it worked, it passed. They send it back to the Senate. Oh, it passed, right? 
Now they send it to the to the uh, president. President says, "Well, no or yes." In this case, I say, "Oh, yes, it passed, right? Great. Now it's law." So now, once you got the law in place, like let's say this law was to make one billion dollars for internet use for free internet across the nation in rural areas. Let's say rural areas, right? Which I think would be really great specifically because they, they actually have a bunch rougher when it comes to internet cable. So let's say that bill passes. And I'm pretty sure they've passed the bill like that before. Of course, they pass more because they need more money. So once it passes, now you spend enough, you should, let's say, it's the secretary of the, I don't know which would be, secretary, a common secretary or whatever, right? Like, okay, cool. So now we send it to the treasury, right? Okay, so now we need, okay, so treasury, like, okay, I mean, we're gonna need to sign one billion dollars. We're gonna um, find some contractors, right, to do the job, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you got. It. So now you got the contractors in place. Contractors need pay. Okay, so the treasurer says, "Hey, Federal Reserve, um, you know that account for um, ABC ABC contracting? Mm -hmm. um, put a billion dollars in there." The Fed says, "Okay." And it happens, just like that. <laughs> so what you're saying is that if it's all that easy, they just don't want to do it. Exactly. The problem is, I, I just made, I actually made a tweet earlier. Let me, um, a little bit earlier today. Um, I don't know if you actually saw it, but let me see if I, if I can find it again. And it, and it pretty much explains everything, my whole philosophy on based on this here. I'm going to read it to you. And when I read it to you, you're going to be like, uh-oh. What MMT does is make federal government decisions about morals instead of economics. Once you understand that, I expect that you should feel embarrassed about how we treat the fellow citizens of this nation and the world. Hashtag caring economy. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Because... Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, because it's amazing that if you look at the COVID bills, you know, America's gotten funny. Traditionally, when there's like these different types of bills that have to pass, they're between like 80 to 100 pages, 80 to 150 pages. That seems like the normal amount of pages it takes for these uh, pieces of legislation. When you look at um, the COVID relief bills, <laughs> the, the largest one I've seen was like nearly 2,000 pages long. Like it was so big. It was stacked this high on a podium. I'm probably not even like going big enough. It's actually even bigger off the screen. Wow. And that was the latest COVID relief bill. And the problem is, is that it had all these types of uh, inclusions and money assets for like uh, different corporations, different industries, uh, different types of foreign aid as well. A AKA pork, <laughs> as they called it. Pork. Yeah, pork. Now, now, but here's the funny thing about it. Everybody used to be like, oh, pork is so bad, pork is so bad, right? But once you understand that all pork is means is that somebody else got to get some more money, then you'd be like, then you analyze whether they need the money or not, not whether it actually solves the debt. So if it went to a corporation to, that they end up, there was any protections on it, so they end up using that money for stock buybacks, bad. But if the money went to private citizens to put money in their pocket, Good. It went to private small businesses to help keep help them survive the pandemic. Good. I 100% agree with you on that. And I think the problem, too, about Congress is that 
basically any like even with you know Joe Manchin as another good example. Um, whenever it's like uh, policies and bills that help working class people, they like to use the term trimming the fat. <laughs> mm. You know, so the pork is an acceptable term in terms of for their way, but trimming the fat apparently is un is really a good term for them to really take away a necessary uh, money and goods and services for actually working class people, which I think is a uh, pretty disgraceful. And so what do you think about whether these large uh, bit, large amounts of bills that no congressperson reads that sets really all the money to these different types of private industries and completely leaves out working class people? And I do, and before you give your answer, I believe your tweet you just read perfectly eclipses what the federal government is and how modern monetary theory can be more people-centered instead of more money-driven. Yeah. Basically, it comes down to this year, you know. They always look out for a way to enrich themselves, but not enrich the rest of the people. Um, there's a, um, a, a, like an economist kind of guy, his name is um, um, Roger Malcolm Mitchell. He actually um, has runs a web, website called mythfighter.com, and he talks about gap psychology. Well, basically, you know, if you were to stratify society based on income and wealth, the people at the top are trying to make sure anybody below them is not reaching up to them. The people in the middle are trying to catch up to the people at the top, but they don't want the people at the bottom to get close to them. So you end up allowing people allowing so much unethical, immoral stuff all because they want to maintain their position. I so agree. That's so that's the reason why I said what MMT does is make federal government decisions about morals, not economics. So if you do you think it's morally right to walk to see a homeless person suffer while uh, two miles away a guy's living in a, in a mansion worth $10, 15000000 million? Nope. Which actually happens where I live it because I live I live literally only um, maybe 15 minutes away from Palm Beach and then maybe 20 minutes away from Jupiter Inlet Colony, which are two of the richest places in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but I live, in the, I live in the majority of the black city where, you know, the income is low and it ain't that far away. <laughs> yeah, but that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an immoral society because people only care about themselves. In order for this to change, we have to fight for better. But people also have to want better. And a lot of people don't. They only care for themselves. Yeah. Now that I, part, I, that part I speaks from from my from my my Judeo Christian point of view, being that I am I am a Christian progressive or a Christian Christian socialist. I'd probably say at this point now. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100. percent I think to add on to what wrong with our country too is uh, insider trading you know Nancy Pelosi got caught doing it but apparently the media won't cover it um, we all know too uh, what's his name he's a former Georgia senator uh, crap uh, oh uh, Purdue I forgot his first name he got mm -hmm. caught with insider trading at the yeah. beginning of the pandemic hey just imagine this little piece of paper with money right hey I'm, I'm Mr. Lobbyist man over here right yeah. hey I'm Mr. Politician Thank you. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write the bill 
all you do is say yes, which is what really happens. So I just say you're saying Most you. politicians don't even read the bills because they're written by lobbyists. So it's bribery. Think, yes. think tanks. Yes, legalized, semi-legalized bribery. So what? So far, so far, radio audience, what you, what you should, what we're just describing is, is that Jabari was showing me that. Give me an example of how insider trading works. And so how it works is you got the lobbyists, you got the big corporation goons, they slide a piece of paper to the congressperson. The congressperson never really reads the legislation it signs anywhere or votes on. The piece of paper in this sentence is money. That's the type of uh, donations they get from lobbyists. Politician takes a type of money, looks a different type of way, goes along with that uh, legislation that's written by the lobbyists in the first place. And that's why we get kind of fucked up in the system. So I'll let you go. I just wanted to give that for our radio audience. Yeah. So, ba so basically what it is, is they do that, right? And let's say a person's been very devoted to the lobbyists, right? But they get voted out. Notice that they always fall right back on their feet and end up becoming lobbyists themselves or working at or working at corporations or something like that. that yeah, they, like that Paul used Ryan. To them. Or Eric Holder. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, the, like the, the um, law office he worked for, I don't think they ever closed up his office. They just kept it. He spent some time as the attorney general, got done, went back to work for the same company. It happens a lot. The people, it's just a, a merry-go-round. Democrats do it and Republicans do it. Although, I really don't see the difference between the two. They're they, 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 they just two sides of the same corrupt coin. Just one pays lip service to small businesses, the other pays lip service to poor people. At the end of the day, they all both of them work for corporations. I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, just to really wrap up, because this has been a, a great conversation, um, can you give some last thoughts on universal basic services as well as um, really public banking in your eyes that you want my audience and really whoever else is listening to really eclipse from this conversation? Well, it's simple as this. Um, I know it sounds great when somebody says, oh, we're going to offer you an extra, extra 100000 2000 whatever amount of dollars a month. That's going to really help you out. But when you look at it, all it does is perpetuate the same system we're trying to get away from. You get the money, but you have to go out there in the market and get and find your services. Universal basic services cuts out the middleman. Therefore, you cut out a lot of the profit margins that big corporations have. And so that means that you can more efficiently provide for the people without making shareholders super duper rich. Public banking. Um, the two aspects, one being the, the investment banking part and one being the personal bank. By doing it at post offices or other small banks, that allows the unbanked to not have to pay for services at check cashing places and other places that they're already poor and then they have to lose a certain percentage of that money as well. And public investment banks allows cities and other municipalities as well as um, certain businesses able to do things for the public purpose from banks that don't want that will fund things that a regular bank wouldn't because they don't see the profit margin. I always remember, like I told you earlier, what are the first seven levels of capitalism? That tells you who runs everything. C-A-P-I-T-A-L, capital. Capital is not human. And what is going on in this world is not humane at all because of capitalism. 
I agree with you 100%. I can definitely uh, see the faith in you. So um, I do want to appreciate and thank you for coming on. Um, any last plugs you want to give uh, to for our audience to check out? All right. Plugs are definitely have to plug our website that, I, that I'm co-editor-in-chief of, www.realprogressors.org. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at, at RealProgressUS and at RP underscore IN underscore action. That's um, Real Progress and Real Progress in Action, our 501c3 um, and our 501c4 or, um, nonprofit organizations. You can also check us out on, on YouTube at Real, Pro Real Progressives and at Real Progress Action. Um, we also have several podcasts, um, Macro and Cheese. You can um, find it on our website at realprogressive.org or you can get a direct link there by going to www.m-a-c-r-o-n-c-h-e-s-e.com. We also have a new Untouchables on the website too, which everybody wants to check. You should check out if you want to learn more about how fraud is destroying our nation. And that's about it. You can find me at, um, on Twitter at Jared Morris and pretty much every other social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Stereo, all of that. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I believe this is a great conversation to educate our audience really about uh, universal basic services as well as public banking in general. You've taught me a lot today, a lot about uh, different things. Um, I'll make sure I never use the word, uh, uh, two word phrase tax dollars ever again. So, <laughs> taxpayer dollars. Never use taxpayer dollars at the federal level. At the exactly. state level, they exist. At the federal level, they don't. That right. taxpayer dollars at the, the federal level is a classist, racist way of controlling the population. Ooh, I, I can't disagree with you there, my friend. I want to appreciate you for coming on my show. Um, those who are watching, this is the Revolutionary Jargon Show on the Fred Hampton Leftist Network. I do want to appreciate my friend here, Jabari Morris, from the U.S. Progressives, for joining us today. And Real progressives. <laughs> pardon? Real progressives. Real progressives. My fault. Thank you for that. For joining us from the Real Progressives, this is Jabari Morris. Uh, you are watching Revolutionary Jargon from the Fred Hampton Leftist Network, and we are signing out.